0: Thanks, Michael. Um, You know, it's really just a great time to be able to be a part of a family like Roswell Community Church, where we are in a place that is filled with people who are longing to follow the commands God's given them, whether that is to serve, whether that is to love one another, whether that's to live in community, we are a people who truly do love the Lord, and we truly do want to be a people who go where God has sent us. And as we move into a new year, this is the the aspect of our faith that we've drilled down on in the sermon series that we're calling "Sent." We're asking this question, where has God sent us? And we've talked about how he's first before anything else sent us to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the foundation of everything that we do. That's the foundation of who we are and what we believe and and why we worship and why we teach our kids about God, of why we celebrate communion. Everything we do is built on the foundation that we have been sent to follow Jesus Christ. We've talked about how we've been sent to obey. We've talked about how we've been sent to gifts and to use our gifts. Today, we're going to talk about where God has sent us. It's going to get a little bit more concrete. We've been in the abstract. We're going to move into the concrete. And for some of you, you're like, yes, I need concrete. Others of you are like, can we go back to the abstract? There's something for everybody. Don't worry. So listen, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a place that you don't want to be? It feels like God's waiting room a little bit, um, and it's terrible. And so a lot of times I think what happens is as we're asking these questions about where God has sent us, we put what it means to be sent by God somewhere in a box that God's word doesn't try to jam that calling into. And so a lot of times like, man, when is God gonna send me somewhere? When's he gonna send me to a church program? When's he gonna send me to a ministry? I remember when I was in seminary, Everyone had jobs in seminary, most of them were bad. Um, So I remember I was scanning the job board and I saw this job listing for a public policy consultant at a, um, at a mass transportation consultancy in Dallas, Texas. And I was like, man, this looks great. I like the West Wing. Um, Tanner's cleaning pools. This seems better than what he's doing. When you see him in the lobby, ask him about his career as a pool cleaner, okay? Um, and so I was like, this definitely looks better than what he's doing. And so I need, to, I need to get in on this. And I had a friend that was working there. And so I go in to this public transportation firm that has since been subpoenaed for numerous things that are borderline questionable ethically. But at the time I didn't know that. And what my job was, what it meant to be a public policy consultant was to sit in a cubicle with a list of every single public official at the state and local level of every city in the United States and call them and sell them on the public transportation conference that the man who was running this firm, which for legal reasons now will be unnamed given the statement I made earlier, and try to get them to come to this conference. And so that was my job, is I would sit at a cubicle and I would cold call um, aldermen, city council people, mayor's office people. That was the consulting work that I did to try to get them to come to a conference so they they could increase the bottom line of this consultancy, okay? I, I was really I hated that job for a number of reasons. If you know me, details and repetition and focus aren't really what you would call strengths. Um, neither is sitting still. And and beyond that, I had this vision for what I was going to do with my life. I was in seminary to do ministry. God had sent me, and I needed Him to hurry because I was in a cubicle cold calling people. And what happened is that in my mind and in my heart, I took this idea of what it meant to be sent by God into the world, and I shrunk it down to this picture I had of what it meant to go somewhere and do this holy, sacred act, okay? I'm not saying God doesn't call us to do that. Don't hear that. I'm saying that that is not the extent of what it means for us to be sent by the Lord somewhere. Because what we're going to see today is that we are not the only ones who have this problem in our thinking, where we dichotomize God's call from the rest of our lives. You're going to turn to your Bibles, to the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. God's people had a similar issue, because what happened... And we we talked about this a little bit in our Advent series. Um, What happened with God's people was that as they were disobedient to him, he said, listen, if you continue to be disobedient, as a consequence, you're going to go into exile. You're going to be taken into Babylon, and you're going to live apart from the kingdom that I've set up for you. And so as they're preparing to go into this exile, Jeremiah is prophesying to his people. And he's trying to get them to understand something. This is actually a fairly shocking prophecy. If you were an Israelite at the time, this would be counterintuitive to almost everything you had been taught. And he's gonna talk to these people and say, hey, as you go into exile, there is more happening here than you going to a new place and living with strange people. God's actually sent you into this place for a purpose. And this is really the big idea that we wanna dig into today is God has sent us to care about the place that, that we live. That's it. That's the big idea. That's the first point in the message. God has sent us to care about the place that we live. That's it. He has put us in a place at a time for a purpose. Are there other things happening while all of this is going on? Absolutely, 100%. But remember, it's, it's, it's not a dichotomized box where we have this calling over here and then the secular world over here. There's a holistic calling that God has given his people. Existentially, we are called to a place... For a reason. God calls us to care about that place. And so, as we get into God's word here, let's read in Jeremiah and see what he is telling his people. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1, he says, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, and to the prophets, and all of the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jacoina and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs and the officials of Judah in Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shephon, and Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar. So summary, all of these people had been carted off of Jerusalem into Babylon. That, that's a summary of some of the fun names that we just talked about there. These are the words of Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles to whom I have sent into Jerusalem, from Jerusalem into Babylon: Build houses and live in them; plant gardens and eat their produce; take wives and have sons and daughters; take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So this is unbelievably shocking because if you're an Israelite, you're like, wait a second. These people who don't worship God, that are completely pagan, that are um, whatever pejorative adjective you want to put on who you think is opposed to the Lord, depending on where your views are socially in our current climate, came in, stole our land, killed a bunch of people, and borderline kidnapped us and put us in this new place where we don't know anybody, we don't speak the language, we don't share beliefs, and you're telling me that I'm supposed to pray for them and seek my welfare and their welfare? How does that make sense? How does that make sense? So what you see here is God's giving them this very specific instruction that when we as God's people are sent to a place, we are called to live in and improve the place that God has sent us to live. And this is difficult for us to understand sometimes because as we as we consider where God has put us, it's very difficult for us to make this connection between what is outside the Lord and what we would consider church or holy. And so for God's people, they were taken out of exile. They were taken out of their home and put into exile. And they were given a calling in this place that they were put. So how does this impact us? These were God's people. This was thousands of years ago. What difference does this make for us as Christians? No one has exiled us. When you read the New Testament, when the apostles that are writing New Testament letters are speaking to the church, they very intentionally over and over again use this language to say, you, church, live as exiles in the world. Where you are is not your permanent home. It is different, it is alien, and it believes different things, holds different values, has different pursuits than the kingdom of God. So you are like the exiles of the Old Testament. You are God's people that have been put in a place that is not your home that is different. So what do we do about that? What do we do about that? This is that second point there on the slides, is that we are called to live in and improve the place that God has put us. And so here's where God's calling and where he sent us expands beyond the pinhole that I was looking through in seminary. God didn't just send me there to prepare to do some later thing in a church somewhere down the road. He sent me there with a purpose that I did not fulfill well to care about, engage, and better the community that I live in. So the word welfare is really better translated as shalom or peace. He says, you should seek the peace of the city that I've put you in. And look at the instructions that he gives his people here. They're very, very permanent. He says, build homes. He doesn't say rent. He he doesn't say set up a tent and wait for me to rescue you and take you out of there. He says, put down roots, build homes, plant gardens, eat there, allow your sons to get married, expand, seek. This is one of the only places in the Old Testament that you see a call for God's people to pray for Babylon. He says, pray for their welfare. He doesn't say, pray for God to strike them down and punish them. He actually says, pray for their welfare. Because in the welfare of the city you live in, you will also find welfare. Or in the peace and the shalom and the wholeness of their welfare, you will also find welfare. As Christians, we've been sent where we live for a purpose. It's not to wait this thing out until Jesus comes back. We are sent to improve the peace and the welfare of the community that he has put us in. We do that in a number of different ways, right? We do that in how we consider where we are engaging with the values of our culture in a biblical way. And we'll get to that in a second, because wait a second, we're not supposed to be of the world. And you're right. This is not just a challenge that we had. We're going to do the wrestle that the Israelites had here in the next section. But what does it mean for us to build homes and plant gardens and expand? How do we seek the welfare of our city? So really, a city is made up of a few different kind of ideas, right? I actually uh, love the way that Jacques Alol is a French theologian and philosopher. Um, Word of warning, he's a little edgy that he's also known as a Christian anarchist, but this quote is, I think, trustworthy. He says, We have seen that down through history, God's answer to the construction of man's closed world was to move in just the same. And if he, God, is there by his hidden presence, he is also there by whom he sins. Our task is therefore to represent him in the heart of the city. Here's what he's saying is that just like God looked at a broken world of man and saved it by moving into and living amongst his people, we as God's representatives are called to move in and live amongst people who don't know him. And so how do we do that? Really concrete, tactile ways. How do we as Roswell Community Church seek the welfare of our neighborhood, of our city, of the local place that God has put us, that we live every single day? It's really easy for us to shrink this down and say, we do it through the church. We should, as a church, have organized initiatives to build the welfare of our city, and we want to do that, right? In fact, one of them that we don't talk about as much as we should coming out of COVID is our Life on Mission Fund, and this is actually money that is sitting there that is built to fund anyone in our church's initiatives to go and do ministry in their community. So for example, we have done this in Africa. We right now are doing this to provide a pilot program of mentoring at one of the local schools where we'll use some STEM curriculum um, out of California. California, where these students, will have an opportunity to do um, some STEM experiments, both in the classroom and then on the International Space Station, while they are being mentored by people from our church who are intentionally pouring into them and building relationships. These are students who don't have these type of opportunities. So Life on Mission is funding that. And so this is something that we have available for you as God is leading you to cultivate the welfare of the city. We have this fund waiting and sitting there. Now, we do have limitations on it because there's only so much money, and we do have an application process. Like, if you come to us and say, hey, listen, um, I saw this investing strategy on TikTok, and if we triple leverage some commodity futures, I think we could, like, that's probably not going to work. And please don't get investment advice on TikTok. Like, that's for free, but that's not where you want to do that. So um, maybe Reform Broker or Halftime Report or something. That's just social media that you never really know. So listen, we have this fund. It's out there. It's available. It's available. Because as a church, we want to corporately initiate and engage and improve the city in which we've lived. So we have that. But we also have this opportunity as individuals in our daily lives, outside of the formal church, to cultivate the welfare of our city. So think about this where has God put you? Where do you go to work? What do you do in your neighborhood? Where are you building relationships? Where do you have opportunity to speak in and serve and cultivate peace wholeness and prosperity in the place that you've been lived. I know we have people that are all over the place around Metro Atlanta. Some of us are working in Midtown, some of us are working from home, some of us are in Alpharetta or Milton, some of us are in Woodstock, some of us are in East Cobb. Like literally the span geographically that we have as a church is stunning. So how are we getting in and cultivating the welfare of our city? Where are we loving the underprivileged? Where are we seeking to end injustice and oppression where we have the ability to do that? Where are we being a part of educating the next generation and nurturing those who have no one else to love them? Where are we taking the time to invest in art and beauty and to bring this reflection of the goodness of God into a world that is largely devoid of it. Where are we making good, honest, economic decisions that not only cultivate the welfare of the people that are working, but also of the people that are consuming the products? This call of God in Jeremiah is not restricted to the walls of the church or a ministry. This is a holistic vision that we as people of God should look at the place that God has sent us and try to cultivate its good. We want to be agents of good in the world because it reflects the goodness of the Father who loves us. And so as a church, we don't ever want to turn inwards and say, well, God sent us to church. God's called us to be a part of the church, but God has put us in a place where we're living as exiles. And it is good for us to seek the peace and welfare of the place where he has sent us. We should be voices of love and vitality and health. We should pray for the good of our city, the good of our politicians, even the ones you don't like, which I know right now seems like it's most of them and I get it. We should pray for the good of our economic leaders. We should pray for the good of our schools. We should pray for the good of everything that God has put in front of us because we're here for a reason. We are cultivating the peace of the world that we have been put in, and that's an exciting call because it doesn't restrict itself to this narrow idea of ministry. And ministry is good, but the vision that God has given for our lives is much wider than this human construction of a program or a sermon or a song. Those are spiritual disciplines. Those are areas that build us up and help us understand who God is, but. The goal of our faith is not to sit in a chair and consume information. As a community, we are called to be people who cultivate the peace of the neighborhood that he's put us in. Can start on a micro level. I know people that even just get together with people in their neighborhood. They hang out, they encourage each other. They are there to lean on when times are hard, just like right there in their cul-de-sac. It doesn't have to be complicated, right? Like this is an opportunity we have to look at the place that God has put us and say, I wanna make this better that's not evil it's not secular that is in and of itself a holy task of obedience that will reflect the goodness of God so what do we do because that makes us a little bit nervous right well I don't know if we get too into culture what's going to happen to us if we put our families in these situations they might hear some things that are not of the Lord We might be around people who don't think like we do. We might even hear words that we would just rather not have said in our home. What what do we do? Because it's not, you know, it feels dirty and wrong. How do we square the culture that's evil with our call to be holy? That's a great question. And we're not the only ones that wrestle with that, right? So let's, let's kind of look and see this warning that Jeremiah is going to give verse 8, he says, "'Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, "'Do not let your prophets and your diviners "'who are among you deceive you, "'and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, "'for it is a lie that they are prophesying "'to you in my name.'" I did not send them, declares the Lord. So let's talk about who he is referencing. And you actually see that happen in verse 24, a little bit later down, where this guy who is a false prophet is the people are reading his letter in exile. Like, don't listen to this guy. He's crazy. God would never want us in exile. He promised us a kingdom. We need to wait or work to get back to the kingdom of Israel where he sent us. This is not of the Lord. And what was happening is these false prophets were looking at the commands of God and giving the people all of these reasons that God never said why they shouldn't listen and obey. They said, these people are nuts. God would never want us to be out of where he's called us. It doesn't matter that God didn't actually say that. That was just what they felt. So here's, here's where this is a challenge for us. And this is that third point is we need to beware of voices of discouragement. We need to beware of voices of discouragement because there will be lies that direct us away from where we're sent. And there's really three lies in this range that we deal with as a church in regards to how we engage culture. One of the lies is that we should shelter away from it because it's bad and we should never talk to them. The second lie is that we should capitulate to it, that to engage culture well, we need to change how we obey the truths that we know God has given us. The third lie is we attack it and overthrow it right? Like we have a responsibility to build a Christian government. So anything that stands in that way, we've got to attack culture because it's evil. So there's these three lies that, that we kind of encounter as a church that we hide, that we capitulate or we attack. And really when you read the new Testament, we're not called to do any of those actions towards culture. We are called to be in the world, but not of the world. We're called to be salt and light. So we are called to exist in a culture that does not know Jesus and reflect his truth. We can't do that if we give in to the temptations that happen when we don't wrestle in the tension of what that looks like. Because there's not always a black and white easy answer of how we're supposed to engage culture well, right? Sometimes there is, but more often than not, these are not black and white binary decisions. When we encounter the pain of a culture that's broken by sin, when we encounter the often well-founded suspicion and cynicism around the church in postmodern West right now, it's not as black and white easy to say oh hey here's what you do it's difficult and in those tensions it is always easy to avoid that wrestle by defaulting to some black and white temptations that we have. Well, culture's bad. We just won't talk about it at all. That was sort of the tradition that I grew up in growing up, right? It was like secular music is all bad. You don't ever want to go to a concert. Um, We don't ever want to be anywhere near a place that might accidentally sell alcohol. We don't, and I'm not saying don't be cautious around alcohol, right? But like anything that was not of the church was wrong. We had the Christian brand t-shirts. Maybe some of you remember some of those. Um, if you have those and you'd like to take pictures of them during the week and maybe tag us, that might be a fun trip down evangelical subculture lane. My wife did not grow up in this, so like when she hears stories of the evangelical teen subculture of the 90s, she's like, I don't understand. I'm like, I know it's better that way. And so we, a lot of us grew up in this place where anything that was of the world was bad. And so any kind of ideas of art and beauty and, 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 and flourishing of any kind that's secular humanism, we need to get rid of it, right? Like maybe you were of my generation where we don't watch The Simpsons, it might turn you into a criminal, right? Like you just, that was the world that some of us grew up in. And so as God's people, we wanna be careful and we wanna discern what it looks like to live in this tension of being obedient to who God has called us to be and still engaging in living in culture. It is okay For us to be in a culture that does not know the Lord, it's not okay for us to worship that culture or be disobedient to who God's called us to be. Well, how do we do that? That's a great question. That's a tension we have to live out. And all of us have been put in these different places and these different times and these different wrestles. And so instead of giving an exhaustive to-do list, scripture gives us values. We love and worship God. We seek personal holiness. We obey the Holy Spirit. We live in community and we engage culture well. Those are the values. The concrete version of what that looks like is going to be different for all of us, right? Second one is, is to capitulate. And I would say more recently, this is a tension that the church has felt as an overreaction to how we bunker down. Is Well, you know, a lot of stuff in the Bible you can't really trust that much. We don't have to obey all of it. You know, we can just obey some of it because we don't want to offend people. We don't want to offend people. We don't want to offend people. And Scripture says the truth of the gospel will be offensive to people who don't know Jesus. Again, there's a tension there, right? The truth of the gospel should offend people, not how we treat them, okay? But we, we can fall into this trap of saying, you know, to engage culture well, there's some things of Christianity that we just have to get rid of and change. That's not what Scripture says either. In the New Testament, the apostles constantly warn their people, watch your doctrine. Be careful that false teachers don't come in and deceive you and change it. We have to still be faithful to the truth of what God has said. We can be faithful to the truth and engage culture well. It's that tension that we've got to wrestle with and be careful of. And that last one's to attack. And unfortunately, I think this one everybody can agree on. The right and left can both agree. We should attack what we don't disagree with. Right? We just live in a world where everybody wants to attack everybody all the time right now. And so this concept of the church should attack culture, I would say, is one of the prevailing challenges we have to really love where God has sent us. Because there's this lie that anything that disagrees with you, you attack and destroy it. Scripture doesn't say as a church that we go and tell the culture what they're doing wrong. It says we love them and expose them to the truth of the gospel as we cultivate shalom. The Holy Spirit convicts. Your Facebook comment's just not going to do that. Right? And so, how do we make sure that we're avoiding this temptation to attack a culture? What if culture attacks us first? Man, that's a great question. And I love that question because I'm somebody that if you mess with me, I want to hit you. You know, that's just kind of the model of life that I had as a kid. Enneagram 8, fairly aggressive. I enjoyed hockey. Like, I just want to hit you back. Here's, Here's the problem with that is every time, every time Jesus is attacked, he literally... Says, we don't hit back, we die, and we sacrifice for the people that are attacking us. Like he puts the guy's ear back on after Peter cuts it off, which everything about that is really kind of awesome. And so every time the church is attacked, nowhere in scripture does it say attack back. It always says, in humility, we pray for those who persecute us. It takes that lie of attack off the table right? And so those lies that we wrestle with are are our version of the lies that God's people wrestle with. God doesn't really want you in Babylon. His whole idea was to give us this great kingdom, and we're exiled now. We just got to wait for him to take us back. We're not going to be here a very long time. We don't need to engage with these people. We just need to wait on God to take us back. That was the lie they wrestled with. The lie we wrestle with is a slightly different version of that. Jesus is coming back. Let's just bunker up, you know? Pearl Jam's scary. Stay away. Um, other lie is, you know, Jesus will come back one day. Let's just kind of blend in and, and leave these antiquated beliefs behind. Or, hey, these people are out to get us. Let's hit them back. <laughs> All of those take away our ability to love where we've been sent. So, what do we do in the meantime? Because even in this, it's a little bit discouraging. What, what are we doing here then? Are we just kind of giving up? You know, we've been sent into exile. Or are we just kind of giving up if we lost? Are we capitulating? Are we, like, what is God doing in the midst of this exile? Like, God's people had to ask that question. What is God doing? If we're just in Babylon, what is he doing here then? Let's keep reading. It says in verse 10, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. That's Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, and to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all of the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the same promise God's given us, right? So God is telling them this. You are cultivating where you are sent while you wait in eternal salvation. This is the last place that we're gonna to end today. This is the last point. We cultivate where we live while we wait on an eternal salvation. The whole end game of our faith does not stop here on earth. There is this promise we have of an eternal kingdom, an eternal life that as we're in exile, we wait on God to take us to. And just like God's people in Jeremiah, were gonna be in Babylon for a while, there was a larger narrative that God was writing. You're going to be in exile, and I'm going to come and take you back and put you home. I'm going to keep my promise. What are the promises that God has made to the church? When we see that he's given us a hope and a future, how does that translate to us as Christians? What is the hope and the future that we know we have in Jesus Christ? Eternal life, where we enjoy an eternal kingdom, living in harmony with God forever. That's it. That's how, when we engage culture, we can suffer well. That's how we can deal with disappointment. That's why the prosperity gospel doesn't work. At the end of the day, the prosperity that we're cultivating here is a temporary reflection of the goodness of God that points to the larger story that God has called us into. It is good to seek people's welfare here on earth because it's a reflection and a shadow of the greater greater eternal welfare that we have in Jesus Christ. It's the center of everything we do, so we cultivate with a hope. We enjoy what we have here, understanding that it's a mirror of a greater truth. We can endure the difficulties of cultivating a broken, dangerous world because we see that it is a small part of a larger story that God has written. While we're here, we're called to do good. While we do good here, we continue to hope in what's to come. And so as we celebrate communion today, as we come and we worship the Father today and consider where has he sent us? How do I cultivate the peace and fullness of my neighborhood? We do so with the same confidence that Jeremiah gave these people in exile, that there is a day that God is coming that he will fulfill his promise to us. We are safe to engage a scary culture. We are safe to take risks and suffer because there is a day where there's a salvation coming that we will be put back in our home. And so that only happens through the personal work of Jesus. It's through faith in him that we understand this eternal kingdom. And so today, as we respond, we we taste and we touch and we hold these reminders of what gives us access to the hope of eternity. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your word and that you have sent us to a place now and that you are saving us to a place in the future. God, we pray that you would give us clarity on what it looks like for us to cultivate the good of our city now and so that people will see a reflection of your goodness And in human flourishing, we understand the love that you have for us. So God, we pray this morning as we come, and we take, celebrate, and remember what Christ has done for us on the cross, that you would help us to be a people that reflect that world to the world that you have put us in. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.